Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Angler's Happy Hour podcast. In today's show, Nick and I discuss Nick's cars, another cross-country trip, and some really cool bass tracking research done by the Texas Fish and Wildlife Service. We thought the data was really cool and really interesting, and we hope you do as well. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode. We are a touch shorthanded today. It's just Nick and I. Rob is on a uh, big hunt with his son, Boyd. And uh, Nick and I are just up bright and early. Uh, I'm in Florida. Nick's at home. We're going to see what we can do. I think we've got some cool topics, though. So um, we'll see if we'll see if we can pull off a shorthanded episode. What do you think, dude? See, I don't even think it's going to be a matter of pulling it off. I'm pretty sure this is going to be number one out of 53 or 54 because we cut the dead weight finally, dude. I like it. <laughs> more mic time for me is always a good thing. So I'm, I'm sure the listeners will be stoked to get more Nick, <laughs> man, for sure. We got we rid will... of the gruffy voice senator. You know, we're, we're, we're rolling now. We're going to miss Rob's salty opinions on this one. But, <laughs> you know, dude, where he's at. We've got a uh, weather front coming into Arizona oh, this week, oh, like a major good. weather front. So in Phoenix, no big deal, right? It's actually going to be nice. Yeah. But where Rob is hunting without giving up any of his hunting spots, it's going to be very cold. It's going to be very sketchy getting around. Like, I mean, there's going to be snow and ice. And like, I actually took this road, I, my one uh, gla- hunting glassing experience I ever did, I took this road with Rob and Alex a couple summers ago. And uh, I, I was sitting in the back seat and I got so car sick, dude. I got so car sick driving up there. We stopped for uh, burritos on the way up, of course. Yep. We get there and uh, I'm just sitting in the back thinking it's going to be fine because they're the ones that cared, you know? So I was like, I'll just yeah. sit in the back, dude. You know, I don't care what, you know, I'm just along for the ride. Well, the road ended up being so intense just just bumpy but also i mean there were points where it was a single lane dirt road on the edge of a straight up and down cliff you know i don't know if this is the road that you had drove when you were you know went up and hunted with rob but dude i can't even imagine that with ice and they had some scares last year dealing with that ice so hopefully it goes smoothly for them that's what I felt like it was maybe deja vu or something. Didn't they already have a sketchy experience with some winter weather? That was last year. Yeah, last year in the did. same place. I said, well, you're yeah. not going to that same place, are you? He's like, oh, yeah, we are, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude, they're calling for like six inches in Flagstaff. So, you know, even though it's not nearly as high as that, three or it's four wet, you know, sloppy inches of snow on a mud, muddy dirt road is a – maybe I shouldn't joke about all this uh, microphone time. I might have to – I might have to absorb more time long term, so hopefully they get back safe. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be getting their smart guys, but it's going to make for tough hunting conditions for sure. You know, it's, well, it's might, Boyd's hunt. Might be good though, right? I think I've heard that. I, you know, at least you know, with my tiny amount of experience in Wyoming growing up, they liked it. You know what I mean? Like it might be like during the the thick and the teeth of the storm might not be that good, but you know, maybe a little change in our hot, dry weather will will help them tag out fast for sure i mean we're both hunting experts so we definitely yeah. think it's uh these are great conditions for them to go kill a kill a big deer they're going for a rhino right they're on a rhino hunt <laughs> <laughs> it's either a javelina or a deer yeah <laughs> well good luck to those guys uh, we'll miss rob this week uh how about you man what's going on uh, your way oh man just uh 
Yeah, just doing the thing. Like you pointed out, we got a little weather change coming. So it'd be nice to my wife's birthday was on Thursday and uh, it was 99 degrees. It was shattered the record. I think it was like 93 or 94 had been the previous record. So it's nuts that uh, it, it got up that hot again. But, uh, you know, I had one funny story um, this week happened to me. And, you know, the I talked about it um, a week or two ago. I was looking at a, a, a property that had a, a house, you know, kind of actually a newer double wide on a little under an acre. And uh, so I got that thing under contract and it's tenant occupied. So that always kind of adds a new layer to it because, you know, tenants rights, they get 48 hours notice before you can go inside the house and no big deal. Like that's, that's totally just regular stuff. You have an inspection period and that's anywhere from seven to 10 days. So you just plan it out and it's all good. So I made the appointment and it was on Wednesday to uh, go see this house. And it's always a bad sign when uh, I texted the, the, realtor for the other side is actually a buddy of mine ironically and so i was like hey man you know what's the scoop on that one on happy road like is there a lockbox because typically there's a lockbox outside that i can use with my you know realtor credentials to get in it's always a bad sign when he's like nah the tenant will just let you in he's there and it's like oh, he's I there <laughs> yeah i hate going in houses when someone else is there dude because like you know, I don't do anything weird. It's not like I want to sniff their underwear or anything, but it's just like you can't concentrate, man, especially a tenant. Homeowners can sometimes be a little different, but and I get it. Tenants just, you know, want to, I don't know, they just want to. Well, the homeowner want, wants to sell the house, so they're going to give you uh, all the space you need, man. The tenant does not want to leave. A thousand percent accurate. That's what it is. And, and yeah, and the tenants just, you know, I guess they've got no stake in it. They don't want to leave, and maybe they're even more cynical that you're going to do something weird. I don't know. Sure. So, so I got to the house and, you know, my, my wife and son were along for the ride. Cause we're just kind of doing the thing right now at that. And so luckily, you know, she said, you know, we, we pull up and I was like, you know, maybe since he is here, like, if you don't mind just hang in the van, our son was asleep anyway. So I was like, yeah. I'll just run okay. in there. I'm not going to do like a very long inspection. It's not formal at all. I'm not like meeting an inspector there. I just, I know what I'm looking for and, and I'm prepared to just be in and out. So the house was way rougher than I had anticipated when I was like going up the steps because it's, you know, it's a mobile home. So it's up in the air and the steps were pretty rough. And dude, I knock on the door, just hear this loud voice, like big booming male voice talking into the phone. And I was it's like, instantly good. I knew I was like, ah, this, this one's going to suck a little bit because <laughs> the guy sounded kind of loud and a little intense. And so I was like, gosh, dang it. Like, Okay, whatever. And it was even kind of like nerve-wracking to knock on the door. We need to talk to Alex Sentner. His job is to like evict people and get money from him. I I don't have hey, any courage when it comes to that, dude. If Alex could have a camera on him, he could have like the next great reality show, dude. It would be like the next live PD or something like that, you know, just having to deal with people moving him in and out of rentals. He's got so many stories. We need to get him on just to talk about these stories but alex is a big dude like i mean no one's gonna mess with him and he's prepared for that you and i it's a little different we're not quite prepared for that <laughs> dude i am not intimidating you're at least kind of intimidating with your no, facial hair i look like i'm like i look t unintimidated to say the least we probably have like some police officer buddies listening or something and they're laughing like what a big wussy like no big deal but did i get nervous i get choked up oh sure so i hear this guy's voice booming and i'm like okay this is gonna be one for the ages i can feel it coming so, you know, I like, I give the old, like, non-police sounding knock, you know, no. and, uh, 
<laughs> you gotta do like a little tempo to it because if you just go boom 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 it's like true they're, they're already flushing their drugs and like cocking their guns so the <laughs> the guy's like okay mom hold on the guy's here dude the door swings open and uh it, it, it's just a bummer man sometimes you see how people live and you just you feel bad and so the door swings open and instantly the odor of like you know food going bad trash everywhere like it, it just the odor is like the first thing and then oh. there's this big giant dude he's probably like six two six three two fifty wearing no shirt wearing just like you know basketball athletic shorts dude the whole time i'm in this house like it's so sad like this house is just you know it's ruined like it, it's gonna need a full drywall subfloor everything in that house is gonna have to be cleaned up dude that kid he finally got him to put a pull-up on that kid was holding my hand. He was like holding on to my leg. It, I, dude, it was intense. And I, this was at one o'clock in the afternoon. It's not like I set this appointment up for six thirty. Didn't like roll out of bed a or a bath or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it That's is gnarly, man. I felt bad, man. But it was just, it was funny because the, the usually those types are, you know, I can warm them up, and he became really friendly. And you get someone's life story, even though he didn't ask for it. And, sure. You know that things aren't awesome in their life, but. uh you know, hopefully, hopefully that all works out and, you know, everything moves on to a better place. But I, it was just ironic that like, I hear this big masculine booming voice thinking I'm going to have to deal with something totally different than a three-year-old just like running around. And we get to one room in the house and every piece of his story is changing, right? Like it starts out, I'm divorced. And then the next story or the next room is I live alone. And then the next room is, well, my brother lives with me. Dude, there is a house there. With no no door handle, right? No like lever, no knob, no a nothing. A room in the house, you mean? With just a deadbolt that locks from the outside. <laughs> it's like I don't want to know what's in that room, dude. <laughs> I'll check <laughs> like, this one out later. Me, yeah, please don't tell me that kid stays in that room. Like Woo! I felt like I needed to call CPS, and I still, I I don't know. And I was really glad my wife and kids stayed in the van because, dude, I got in the house, you know, and I'm breaking the ice and trying to just de-escalate the awkwardness. Dude, this kid walks behind me and locked the front door. And I was like, oh, no. That's not fun. Dude, I was looking at the back door. I was like, okay, that's still open. (laughs) Worst case of going out that door, down the steps, and back to my car. And this is kind of in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, it's out. It's out in the desert. Well, so this isn't Florence or anything. Dude, this is this is kind of in your hood, dude. It's in Queen Creek. It's off of like it's close to the Santan Mountains, dude. That's why I was not prepared for that. I I just was thinking it was gonna be, you know, five thousand paint, carpet, and some cleanup. And I walked out of that like, holy wow. cow, like it's amazing, man. So are you still are you still gonna get the place? I am, yeah. yeah. I think uh, um I maybe I need some bad karma and kicking those people out will be my bad karma for twenty twenty. But yeah, it uh, it still works, but it is just funny, man. Like it uh, you never know. You just you never know. But yeah. I don't think I've ever had in all my and I've looked at some, I mean, I've seen some really seedy, nasty joints. Like I I saw one in Maricopa one time where it was terrible, man. I think they had been abusing dogs in that house for a long, long, long time. There was like, there was so much dog poop that like you would step and it would like come around your shoe, like and like go over the top of it. You know what I'm trying to say? It was like two, three inches of dog crap throughout the Just a layer. House. Just a la- like carpet, but like thicker, like sand. And you actually went in there? I didn't realize it again, dude. Like it was vacant, it was bank owned. Like so, I mean, I, so I've seen some scary Ooh. stuff, but you know, three year old, get a three year old's old enough, dude. Like that's not like 
Yeah, no. it's like, he's like talking to me in complete sentences. He's telling me about his Halloween yeah, and like cool. it just was it's a bad deal. So I might have just bummed out this whole episode thinking I could make that story funny. And now I feel bummed out. Yeah, but, look at you, bro. Well, well, just it's, hey, it's, you know, just, hopefully things do, uh, you know, end up going well for that man. That is uh, that is pretty intense, dude. Yeah, hopefully it will. And a lot of times when that type of situation happens, you know what I mean? People get help because it's hard to get to. I don't know how those types of people, you know, get in that house in the first place. So hopefully they'll get some help because normally through some tenant screening stuff like that, it'll it'll sort itself out. So. Yeah, yeah, right on. So I see you coming from a shiny looking uh, condo or something there. I see a granite countertop behind you. I see some <laughs> hip brown walls. Where are you staying at the Ritz Carlton this week? Uh, I'm staying in an old outdated uh, resort here in Orlando. Actually, it's uh, we've got a uh, cup tournament. I talked about it a little bit last in last week's episode that I was driving out here to Florida for the Patriot Cup in Major League Fishing, and uh, so I left the house on Wednesday. Drove like 900 miles, got to uh, Kerrville, Texas. That's my stop in Texas. I, I like to try to get to Kerrville. I think I probably stayed there with you before, Nick. Yep. Um, then the next day I drove to like Pensacola, Florida. Uh, just had just got across the border and um, yeah, uh, came in last night to Orlando and just kind of got ready. I'm fishing the third day of this tournament, so... Uh, the, 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 these cups break up into three groups to start with, uh, A, B, and C, and it's randomly drawn. You're randomly seated into the three groups. So I'm fishing tomorrow. Today's my day to do just whatever media and whatever, and, of course, uh, sit down with you and do a podcast. So uh, some of the guys are out on the water now, and uh, I'm just kind of catching up on a little bit of sleep, getting used to the time change, and getting ready to fish tomorrow. Like, I don't, I don't know where we're going to fish. It's kind of weird because we're here in November, and I've never really fished Florida outside of the spring and early summer so and i don't know any of the water around here we're not allowed to look at anything so i don't know i don't have any clue dude on where we're gonna go i mean i fished the 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 Kissimmee chain which is within distance of this and we could easily end up on one of those lakes but they like to throw people for curveballs and they could i mean there's a lot of water within whatever the range 90 miles of here man i mean <laughs> we could absolutely easily just end up up somewhere crazy i mean they could drop us into a a swamp or <laughs> anything. I mean, anything that'll fit 10 boats is fair game. That's really cool, man. And, uh, I, I, I like that aspect of the surprise and, and not, you know, it's kind of a cool equalizer. Some guys that fish those things are probably that could be their home state. So they have a little bit of an edge maybe, but I really like the equalizer of it just being like, well, everyone knows it's November. Everyone knows it's, you know, fish typically do this in this area, but, and obviously there's no practice so you just you show up and show out it's pretty cool yeah well exactly dude it's uh i don't know if i would want it like i i do enjoy the bass pro tour and and regular you know style events where you can go practice because i actually enjoy the practice and i enjoy seeking them out but this is fun dude i mean there's a fun element to fishing a new body of water and when you wake up in the morning and don't know where you're gonna go until you get there, it's 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 super fun, dude. It's exciting and fun, and it's not nerve wracking. We talked about it in the last one. It's not nerve wracking until you get there, and then when you get there, that's when it starts rolling. But there's nothing to be nervous about right now, right? You just literally rig up a rod for every scenario. There's no limit on what you can bring. So I mean, even though we're in Florida and it's limited, I'll probably have 20, 25 rods rigged up in the boat, ready to go. And you go down and see the type of lake it is, and see the water, and 
okay, these are the eight rods that I'm going to put on the deck and we'll start with this and, and you go. So it's cool, dude. I'm stoked for it. Do you mind framing and people for sure know this that I don't, but frame it for me. So what's the format on it? Um, how many days and like, how's it work? Yeah. So there's the first round you have, have it split into three groups of nine or 10 okay. and the top six out of those 10 in each group advance to the uh, sudden death round. And okay. then the sudden death round is kind of unique because you've got, now you're down to two groups of nine that fish two separate days. You're on another body of water. Typically they never take you to the same body of water two days in a row. So every day of the tournament somewhere else. Oh. <laughs> and they set a target weight. So they'll say like, okay, 30 pounds. And the first uh, four guys to get to 30 pounds, move on. Oh. And then, um, so, and, and then the, you know, or, uh, the first, uh, five guys to get to 30 pounds move on. So it's kind of cool because, uh, if you do really well, you could be out of there early. We talked about that with Greg, right? Like, you yeah. know, he, he's, when he's camera guy on that, uh, sudden death <laughs> round, he's always, you know, hoping he could be eating breakfast by nine o'clock and uh. the guy got on him and it rarely works out like that. But, um, you never know how long that day is going to go. And then, you know, the guys that advance from that day, make the final day, the championship day. And, um, that's just back to typical three, two and a half hour periods. Most weight wins. Okay. That's so cool, I, man. What's crazy is, yeah, I mean, you could be out of here after one day or you could be here all week. Like there were guys that fished in the first group yesterday that literally drove all the way to Florida, fished for seven and a half hours <laughs> and are back in their trucks going home right now. So, oh. uh, but because without practice or anything, you literally could be here for one day. But <laughs> if you have a good week, you could be here all week. So yeah, hopefully that's the case uh, for us. It's the last big tournament of the year. So, I, you know, I'm hoping it's a, it's a good one. It's the third time I've been to Florida this year, dude. I can't believe that. I'm, and I've driven each time, man. I've put probably, uh, well, what is that? It's about a 4,500-mile round trip in my Tundra. So that's 13,000 yeah. miles, Florida miles, uh, just driving driving here and back this year. So I'm hoping next year maybe just I, Florida's cool. But once is a, a better number than th three. Yeah, man. Is this one of the years where you trade your truck out, or is this? I can't remember how long you've had this one. Yeah, I'm gonna get a new one, dude. I'm gonna get a new one here. It's uh, right at 100 miles. I'll click over 100,000 miles. So that's good for resale, right? When you get over 100,000, people want it more, right? You know what I think is best for retail is just leave your wrap on. Instantly. Yeah, there you go. Dude, that's like a 10% surcharge if you get the Bertrand wrap. Extra points for the cow slobber going down. Yeah, the this side. is the truck that hit the cow on <laughs> Angler's Happy Hour. People dude, will be a, all over that. Instant, I'm thinking eBay for this one, dude. I think we got to take it to the next level. No auto trader for you. Dude, hey, so we've got uh, – we've actually got a really cool topic today, um, and I'll tease it right now. It uh, involves bass, a bass tracking study that was done in Texas and is still going down. And uh, I've watched quite a bit on this and taken a lot of notes. We'll get into that. I had to throw a little fishing teaser out there. But, dude, since you brought the trucks up, it's like you uh, it's like you knew it was coming um we had a, a question from a listener and it was really geared towards you dude it was uh, a, a listener that wanted to know like some of the favorite vehicles that we've owned and, and we're not going to make this a uh, car podcast completely and not talk about it for you know 30 minutes but dude yeah you've had some pretty interesting vehicles man like what are your favorite uh couple cars and trucks that you've had because uh, you know as as listeners know you're you're a kind of a, a car fanatic dude and um you you've bought a lot of projects and also cool cars just over the year that's kind of a uh, your vice man you, you love cars 
Yeah, thanks. I know when you screenshotted me that question, I was just like, wow, I, there is like one other listener out there that's into cars and trucks. That's pretty cool. So like you said, I'll I'll keep it brief. I could really drag this one on with that. You know, I think the first thing that pops to mind. So I was I was young and I could tell that I like it was weird, like 12 or 13. All of a sudden I was like, man, I really like cars. And I was growing up at that time in a small town in Wyoming in Pinedale. And this is, you know, shoot, going on almost 15, 20 years ago. So the Internet wasn't what the Internet was today. And I remember I was an eBay addict. And like, dude, I would just because, you know, in a small Who town on eBay anymore. Does, do, do, have you, when's the last time you were on eBay? So eBay has some like niche stuff like it still sells like hard to find items. So I do. I cruise okay. eBay, right. but it is not. I mean, like Amazon 100 percent became what eBay was in the early 2000s. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, then I lived in a small town. So like we genuinely had a general store. Like there was one store that sold like pants, bananas, light bulbs, like that's small town living. Right. So. I got this wild hair. I was like, dude, I bet they sell cars on eBay. So I'm just like convulsively searching. So the first car I ever had was a 1975 Cadillac Coupe de Ville that I bought on eBay when I was 13. And I bought it for 1500 bucks, dude. And it was in Utah. And this old retired couple drove it up. And uh, man, they I drove I had, it up to meet you, huh? They did because they, you know, okay. they actually knew the area. So they're like, oh, that's cool. They, they drove it up on a Labor Day weekend and they hung out. And, uh, Dude, I, I bought that car because the at the time the Cadillac that Cadillac had the largest um, uh, largest engine ever produced factory from the stocks from you know stock from the factory. I had a 500 cubic inch V8. So as a 13 year old who knew nothing, I was like, 13, dude, that thing, dude. like that <laughs> thing is gonna be so fast. Like I cannot wait to get my hands on that. It's gonna be like a rocket, dude. I think the 70s era Cadillac is almost as heavy as like a three-quarter ton Dodge pickup truck. I mean, it is like a tank. And then it has all the emissions era stuff on it. That thing was so slow that like you could you could walk faster than it. It was amazingly <laughs> slow. But it was like a big couch, dude. It had like cushy suspension. And I was into some devious extracurricular activities at that point in my high school career. So, dude, I would load that thing up with my buddies. I'd have like six or seven people in it, and we'd go out into the boonies and do illicit things perfect car for that that's cool car. it ran out of gas <laughs> with like a bunch of things that i didn't want my parents to know i was doing <laughs> i had to call them perfect. to come help me so it all started with a 75 cadillac coupe de ville and i had the license plate said ebay on it because in wyoming you get four letters and you know now here i am 32 almost 33 years old the last time i did a count and this was probably three or four cars ago i had crested 40 so I've bought and sold so much, rare, and I never really have anything that nice. I think, you know, I I have one nice toy right now. Sick, a couple sick ones for sure, but 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 you do have the taste for just unique vehicles, and it's not like folks that he has ten at a time. He just per- turns and burns. He he has one for uh, four months and he sells it and gets another one. Yeah, like I always have something safe and reliable. Like I had a Dodge Ram for a long time. I got rid of that. And now I have my Suburban Assault vehicle, which is not a reliable car. I usually have something reliable. But Bought it from uh, the Border Patrol folks. Yeah, yeah. That was a, an auction, Border Patrol auction vehicle. And uh, it's so nasty, dude. Like there, I don't think it's truly vomit, but there's like human substances that were like caked into it. It was disgusting. My wife won't ride in that one. She's not, she's not having that. <laughs> she won't go in it, huh? 
Dude, it's she, I paid someone to detail it. And she still won't. She still won't get down on it. But I've I've had some fun stuff, man. I I would say if I had to pick some of my top ones, I uh, I had a 1978 Chevy Malibu that a, another buddy of mine turned into a race car. And back before dad life, I I did some drag racing with it, and that was pretty fun. And uh, you know, I've had I've had a bunch of trucks. Um, you know, I've talked about Big Mike, the uh, the dually. He's probably you know, one cool one I had is I, I found a 1953 Ford F-100, and uh, I think I was maybe only the third or fourth owner of that truck, and uh, that was another one I should have never wow. sold, and I was I was ahead of where the market was going just by dumb luck. I bought it for like eight grand, and I sold it for like 9,500. I never make money, dude, like never. No kidding. All those 40 vehicles, I've sold 39 of them for a loss and that truck was the only one did i sold it and then like two years later that became like the most fashionable truck it was probably like a twenty thousand dollar truck after that but i don't care i just have fun but what was cool about that truck is that it had like all the original paint from 1953 had all the original interior and it was a four speed and the shift knob i could just like envision the farmer who had driven that truck for like 35 years dude like it was like this gnarly wooden shift knob it was it's a cool truck, man. I I loved that one, but very cool. Yeah, man. What about I didn't you? know about a lot of those. Right oh, on. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. Goes to show my complete uh, ineptitude with uh, with vehicles like that, dude. I mean, I, you've never even bothered to tell me because uh, you know that I wouldn't even uh, appreciate it. So. Yeah. Well, you know, to each their own. You know, I remember, dude, when I met you, you had a pretty sweet uh, diesel Dodge Ram. That truck was. That truck was a little bit of a hot rod, man. I remember when we did the opens in that, I got to drive that thing. That that thing pulled good. That was a nice truck for sure, man. You know, and since then I've gone over to, uh, you know, I've I've kept it very basic and simple, but super reliable and functional. I've had uh, three Tundras, so uh, I had a 2013, a 2015, and a 2017. Then I'm about to turn into a 2020. So, I mean, it's we're just talking about how 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 many miles I've got to go from place to place, like uh, reliability. And, um, you know, I, I'll tell you another, they're, they're just, they're bulletproof trucks. They're perfect for towing a bass boat. You know, a diesel is great. So cool. They tow a bass boat so well, but it's, it's a little overkill. overkill. Yeah. They're a ton of money up front. They do cost a lot to maintain. And, uh, you know, the Tundras are just such a, uh, and to me, like if you're a bass fisherman and you're driving a lot, it's just, it's, I actually think it's probably the, uh, to me, it's the smartest thing you could drive. And if you fish tournaments that are bonus bucks eligible, Toyota's had that bonus bucks program for a long time. And, you know, every year, man, I've, I mean, honestly, probably over the time that I've had Toyota's, I've probably made 30 grand in bonus bucks. So, I mean, that's uh, that almost buys a truck. It I almost bought one of my say. trucks, you know. Dude, so let's talk about, so you have, every two years you get rid of them and they're about 100,000 miles, right? Yeah, I've gone every three. I've gotten a little smarter with my driving, you know, and uh, so I'll fly in and out a little bit more. So I drive probably 35,000 miles a year now instead of 50. But yeah, I'll hold on to it like three years. Okay, so call it 300,000 miles. And I, and as a car guy, I always try to tease this out of you and listen to you. But have you, like, what's the most catastrophic failure you've endured in those 300,000 miles of towing all over this country with a boat? I feel like I've never heard you talk about anything. Yeah, I mean, so dude, I've yeah, I've been doing it for almost ten years now, and knock on wood, uh, my AC went out once. That's I mean, that's insane. it, dude. My AC went out like uh, maybe seven or eight years ago in the winter time, thankfully, so no big deal. I just drove home 
without AC. I was in Florida, so you yeah. know I, that's He's how I, I had it on yeah. in the first place. <laughs> but no, it was still fine, you know. And I drove home, but that's knock on wood. That is literally it, dude. Out of probably three hundred thousand miles, so yeah, I've been even, really fortunate there. Even if this one throws a you know a rod through the block on the way home, that's that tells you that my brother's funny too because he's like totally like if you don't like cars like my brother i i just won't even go there like he'll be nice and ask me a question but i can tell instantly he's like checks out and dude he's like mr toyota tacoma he's on his only his second one but dude that's incredible dude he got rid of the last one i'm pretty sure he crested four hundred thousand miles and i'm telling you he changes the oil and and rotates the tires he does not you know what i mean and then like whatever other flushes it, it, and so then I'll be like, oh, you know, damn it. My Suburban freaking won't go into gear today and it's doing all these things. And he just politely like nods and he's like, you're such a dumbass, dude. Just buy a Tacoma and forget about it. But yeah. I'm, a, I'm a masochist. Like, I love the problems and like fixing them. But <laughs> dude, if you don't want problems, buy a freaking Toyota anything and just come back in 10 years and you'll be like, well, I've changed the oil 40 times. Like, that's I'm it. With you. <laughs> I'm with you, dude. Hundred percent. No, that's a, that's cool. I mean, I, they're all they're all cool, and I definitely get that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fun in it, dude, for for a lot of people. But uh, yeah, I, um, I'm all for the reliability. So they worked out pretty good. Uh, good question there, Lucas. I appreciate that, man. That's cool. Um, so you ready for some fishing? Yeah, let's do it, man. I mean, it is a fishing okay. podcast, and we're 30 minutes in. So if anyone's so, still yeah, with sorry us. about that, guys. But that's cool. That's a um, this topic. I was looking for topics today and I came across these videos on YouTube and I only got through half of them. So before I even get into this, I need to give everyone proper credit. I actually saw this first on the best on tour fishing blog. It's an email blog. Great blog. If if you like to, if you like, you know, just fishing news, fish industry stuff, non-industry stuff, uh, interesting fishing stuff, subscribe to this blog. It's called best on tour. But there's a, uh, a YouTube a YouTube fisherman in Texas named Ken Smith Fishing. That's his YouTube page. And he's got a seven-part interview series with a guy named Todd Driscoll. Todd works for Texas Fish and Wildlife. Uh, he's a very avid bass fisherman. I told Nick earlier that I've met him before. He does He's done a lot of testing and stuff for Garmin. That's where I had met him in the past. He is, is in the middle of a bass tracking survey. Um, that they've they're five months into tracking these fish they're tracking now they put a lot of research into this and it's not just like your typical tracking survey where they they put chips in one or two fish or tags on one or two fish and uh, and that's it like this is really in depth and it's really interesting because it's completely geared towards bass fishermen like it, like todd is such a hardcore angler that even like you know watching the videos and watching him break it down everything he says is something you can completely picture and relate to because he's out there fishing every weekend and fishing in some tournaments and, and uh, you know it's just it was it, it's by far the most interesting tracking information I've ever seen or read. Um, so they started they start they tried to do this thing in the fall of like uh, I guess that would be last fall. And they implanted some chips into fish, like they call it doing surgery, right? Okay. They, they either electroshock them or catch them. And the first, what happened first was, and they're professionals, they're not, they didn't do a hack job of doing this. But what happened at first was the fish all died that they put the chips into. They had a 100% mortality rate, and it was, okay. it was some type of uh, 
it was some type of infection. Like they uh, rejected the implant type of thing? Yeah, they grew a fungus in the Ugh. cold temps. It apparently made it worse, and they got infected, and they all died. So th- okay. that was pretty interesting. I, I would have thought in the colder water it would they might have done better. Yeah. But they waited and tried it again in May, and it, it was successful. So they, uh, they've got 26 fish uh, currently that um, they have tagged anywhere or chipped anywhere from three up to eight pounds nice. they got half of them in uh by electro fishing and half of them by actually fishing just okay. again to have a little variety and they took half of them from shallow water like less than five feet and then the other half from like 10 to 30 feet just same nice. thing to get another diverse you know because some people will say like there's some fish that live shallow all year, and there's some fish that prefer to live deep all year and will go spawn and go right back deep, right? So, totally. like, they've got a, a wide range of, uh, of fish, and they did this on a huge body of water. Uh, they did it on Fork, but they also did it on a Toledo Bend. Oh, and Toledo Bend is a massive body of water, so it's not like a pond where the yeah. fish has limited places to Structure. go, right? I mean, uh-huh. Toledo is 180,000 acres. Uh, <laughs> it's a big body of water, so there were a lot of... And there's a lot of fishing pressure. There's a lot of different types of cover. So it's the perfect place to uh, to do this type of research. Josh, let Let's, me interrupt you with a question real yeah. quick. So are they, yeah. uh, is like Texas Fish and Wildlife basically sponsoring or like being the, whatever that word would be, sponsor of this survey? Or is uh, um, the, the biologist doing it on his own? You know? I would imagine Texas is behind this. Uh, but again, like, and take everything I say today with a grain of salt, because this is a quick synopsis of a YouTube video I watched. But um, I'd love to get Todd on the show. Yeah, I, first thing I would recommend is you check this out on Ken yeah. Smith Fishing, all the listeners. But uh, it would be cool to get Todd on the show to talk not only about this, but just about other stuff he knows, because he's Because the only he's reason I ask that is, like, man, Texas – already does such cool stuff with like i think they were one of the first of with their version of that share a lunker program right like yep. they pretty much they were the first that, and maybe right? the only still yeah so i mean like right off the top that's so cool so then the fact that they're willing to like you know spend the time effort and resources to do something like this is totally badass and then if i it think is. of like dude and i think i think of like dream jobs certainly like your your job comes with its share of challenges and shortcomings and difficulties but just as someone like daydreaming and kind of bench fishing, like if you couldn't make it as like a top level competitive angler working as like a fishery biologist and like doing that every day, that's a, that's a sweet gig, man. So like, it really would be. Yeah. I mean, sure it does. earned it and did everything, you know, Todd's a stud, but like that is, that's super cool. hundred percent. Yeah. If, if, if it was always like that, I think, yeah, I would be looking <laughs> at doing that hard, <laughs> hardcore big time, man, but you're totally right. Free, so I would never Texas qualify. Texas is the bomb. Yeah. yeah, you know Texas, they they are so far ahead of other states on their on their at least on their warm water fisheries, and it, it, it's statewide, and um yeah. and it's free it's stuff like this that the, that's why they really understand it and they put a lot of focus on it, and um, they get that's why so many people travel to go fish uh, Lake Fork and 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 Rayburn and Toledo Bend, and I mean they know what it does for the for the state and, and it boosts um, their economy, right? Like props to them. Like it's not even just like short-sighted of just being curious about fishing it's like they know that there's a, a big trickle-down effect you know so props to shout out to them that's pretty cool so keep it moving man what else did uh, right. what, what so, did those videos say one thing that was interesting was he we're, we're starting slow here but we're talking about the mortality right uh-huh. and uh 
one thing that he said was interesting was just as a general fact is uh, 20%, there's a 20% mortality rate for all adult bass in general in a year, right? So like every bass that is deemed an adult, and I don't know how big that is, but whatever. A to fifth say, of them as an example, off. Yeah, after a year old or whatever, after two years old. But yeah, yep, uh, just from old age, being caught, um, you know, just w- w- whatever it is, 20% of them uh, die annually, um, annual mortality rate. Let's see. Um, so out of the 26 fish they marked, uh, they put chips in them, but they also put a tag on them with a phone number. So if someone were to catch them, they would call. And um, it was very interesting because out of the 26 fish that were marked in five months, take a guess how many were caught on a giant body of water like this. Now, they put they, they came out of a popular fishing area. But okay. Take a guess out of the 26. The way you're framing this, it has to be a crazy high amount, dude. Let's say, because you made it let's say eight. Five. Close, wow. though, dude. Very close. Yeah. I but, yes. yeah if you wouldn't have made it seem like there was a high number, I would have said one. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So very, very cool, dude, that there were uh, five out of the 26 that were caught. Um, I'm, I'm just looking through my oh, notes. It makes you here. think, uh-huh. like, uh, it sucks to be a fish, dude. So they already got caught to participate in the study. And then within a year, they got caught again. Like, man, they have to, like, deal with that every couple months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Seriously. Well, that's a, that's a highly pressured body of water, right, for right. you. Um, so they, every two weeks, they were coming out and um, catching back up with their fish, right? So they, uh-huh. they would relocate the fish. Every two weeks, they'd go in the water. But um, and that was just like as a group. But what the anglers were doing, like Todd, was they were also in between that they were going out and trying to catch them, you know, just to see and see what they would do after being caught. So they 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 said that they had 75 to 80 fishing events, which means like Todd would go fishing or his partner would go fishing and they would actually have the tracking device with them. So they would specifically go to where each one of these fish lived and try to catch them. Uh-huh. Here's the mind-boggling thing about that, and he's a good fisherman. He caught in all those 75 to 80 fishing events when they knew the fish lived right there, two bass. Uh-huh. They caught two of the 26 fish. So like you know, random anglers came across them and caught them, like because that's how much fishing pressure is on that lake. But even knowing where they lived and having their baits within 10 fish of the 10 feet of the fish, they were able to catch <laughs> two of the fish. Um, Wow. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, right? Um, Out of those two, both of them immediately swam right back to where they were caught. Uh, Uh, Both came off of a piece of structure. One came off of a dock, a six-pounder, and it instantly swam right back to the dock and sat under the dock. Another uh, another fish, the other one, came off of, he said, a, a big giant stump that looked like a spider underwater. Okay. Went right back to that stump. Makes sense, right? And it also yeah. talks to like, uh, you know, it's, it's something they talked about in the video was they talked about uh, how you catch a fish, how you're in a school of fish and you're catching them, catching them, catching them, and they just shut off. And it speaks to how like the official swim right back into the school when you let it go, right? Uh-huh. And they, you know, a lot of people say they release something into the water and it, it spooks the rest yeah. of the school. And I mean, this is... They, they will swim right back into that school. And it's a perfect example of that. You know, I was once I was at Lake Ontario with uh, Justin Lucas and a couple others. 
and we were just having fun before a tournament started, you know, uh, on a different body of water. And we got on one of the best schools of smallmouth of all time. Like it was <laughs> unbelievable. And uh, we wanted to do our little grip and grin uh, photo, which yeah, I've talked about this before. I'm not a huge fan of, I, I, I try not to do this anymore, but this is 10 years ago or eight years ago. And, and uh, we were younger and we wanted to have that cool picture where we were where all holding like 50 pounds, pounds of smallmouth yeah. each. Right. So <laughs> dude, we put all these fish in the live well, take the picture and the fish are biting like crazy, but we take the picture, we let them go. Poof. <laughs> the entire school. I mean, you went from catching them on every drop to you can't catch a bass anymore out of this area. So that was yeah. a, a pretty obvious example of that. They go down there and they blow bubbles to each other. And like, F this man, stop, run away, go They're away. They're doing something like that. <laughs> They're doing something like that. So that was pretty interesting. Um, you know, it it made me think of a couple other like crazy stories too, like uh, just sitting around the campfire or, or having dinner with your buddies, you know, talking about fish like this that you've caught or lost. And one really stood out to me. Uh, Jacob Peroznik told us this story years ago. Have I told this on a podcast, Peroznik's story with his Carolina rig? I don't think so, no. And if you have, I don't remember it, so I'm excited to hear it again. So he's on Bugs Island Reservoir in Virginia, and he's throwing a Carolina rig in a a team tournament a long time ago. And he casts out over this hump and uh, breaks breaks off. Um breaks off at his leader so he's got his hook and his carolina rig leader in this fish he reties fishes the hump a little longer doesn't catch anything moves like a mile to the next hump over and his fish <laughs> catches a fish and it's a fish with his uh hook and, and carolina rig leader in his mouth so interesting how like you know it, and this is gonna show how fish in different bodies of water at different times of year Behave. do different things like what uh-huh. we were talking about here doesn't apply but like that fish just freaked out and swam a mile to another hump after <laughs> being broken off. So, and like, then got caught again. Like that fish is having yeah. the worst day ever. Poor thing. Seriously, dude. He's like, I can't get away from this guy. That's exactly. It tells you how awesome bass are. Like he just goes through the traumatic experience of getting broken off and then swims away, and then he's already back in predator mode. I'm like, oh, cool. I'll just go over here and eat this crawfish. But oh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, dude. Yeah. So so that's totally different. And here's one that's even crazier. Uh, we fished a tournament at Champlain, Elite Series tournament at Champlain in 2017. And we fished it in late July. Keith Combs had gone with his wife to pre-practice in like late May. And he's throwing a jerkbait. I don't remember. I think he's throwing a jerkbait up near Rouse's Point, which is like the far northwest side of the lake. It's a massive lake. He catches like a three pound smallmouth and it's, it had like a really weird feature, dude. It had like a, a messed up eye uh-huh. and he's handling this fish, grabs it and it shakes and buries one of the treble hooks into his hand. So they go through the whole circus and the treble hook ends up, they, t- they take the hook is still into the fish. So they, they just cut it off. Right. So they, uh-huh. uh, they uh, cut the split ring to uh, get, get the, the fish away. separated uh-huh. from his hand. And during the process, the hook ends up getting like all gnarled and bent up and the hook stays in the fish. Uh, he gets himself unhooked, goes back to fishing, drives home, fishes three more tournaments over the next few months. We come back up 
for our tournament. He's pre-fishing in the Inland Sea, which is like 15 miles from uh, Rouse's Point, dude. And Champlain has hundreds of thousands of fish in it, dude. It's like if one of the... not a million. <laughs> yeah. 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 I have no idea how to put a number. So maybe a mil- it's got so many bass in it and it's so big and so vast. Dude, he catches this fish in the Inland Sea. The odds of that are so mind-boggling. It's uh, it's it was unbelievable to hear it, and there's no reason for him to lie about that, dude. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, there's no, no, wow, that's crazy. So, so two crazy examples of fish that have done that, but all that to say, like these particular Texas fish, these Florida strain Texas fish in the summertime from May to September, hardly moved at all. Like those two fish were caught and they swam right back. But one really interesting thing was like uh, their average lateral movement per day uh-huh. as far as how they would swim 130 feet all day <laughs> so like it and they they took the numbers like they it was every two weeks that they came out and actually measured it. them all again right so like mm-hmm. it whatever that math is like some of them may have swam a few hundred yards and some of them may have not moved at all but that was really interesting because they also talked about like in that case you might think they're living in one little offshore area or um that lake has a lot of grass typically so like maybe living in one grass bed but apparently the grass is is really weak this year so um even without the grass they they still kind of really sat still And, and one reason that he mentioned that was uh if they're not spawning all they need is food right so that just goes to show that that lake has so much forage that fish don't have to go far to get it. And if they don't have to go far for their food, they're not going to move. Whereas, like, if you were to do this study on Lake Mead, those bass would travel miles, literally. I mean, yeah, because yeah. they have to go find the food, um, especially certain times of year. So that just goes to show how much bait is in there. And uh, and it's same thing, like, uh, that smallmouth, it had this massive migration Um it had probably been spawning up there by Rouse's point where the water was a little bit shallower and warmer. And he had made his migration to the inland Offshore. sea to eat for the summertime. And, you know, and, and even once he was in the inland sea, like he was probably moving a lot more just because it's, it's different everywhere you go. But, but if you're in a, in a body of water where there's a lot of bait, there's a lot of structure in different places, like if fork was the same deal for them. And I could, you know, picture uh, a, a lot of other lakes that would be a similar deal. Like if there's no, if if they got everything they need, they're not going to go anywhere. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, and it kind of makes me think of the adage that I've you've told me, and I've heard other times too, where it's like, um, you know, you can be in tons of bait, right? Like you're surrounded by shad, and then you leave to find fish somewhere else, right? It's like. <laughs> Don't leave. It's not a one-size-fits-all universal rule, but it kind of throws a little doubt on bailing on a spot that you know is full of forage to go somewhere else when it's like maybe you're just, you know, the approach you have is wrong or something. Yeah, yeah, the fish the fish are probably there, 100%. Yeah, just the decoding the myth. Uh-huh. It's a good point, dude. Really good point. Um, let's see here. Uh, there was a yeah. lot of – there's a ton of timber in the lake, right? Okay. So – um, they, 80% of the lake is timber, 20% okay. is bare bottom. The fish really did kind of prepare the, or, or uh, prefer the bare bottom, which was interesting. It was a 50, 50 split of fish that are on timber and bare bottom, but 
with the percentages of the amount of lake that had timber. Like if you're a, if you don't know a ton about bass fishing, or even if you do, and you look at that lake, you say, look at all that wood. The fish must all live on the wood. Uh huh. But the fish actually preferred other stuff. So that was quite interesting. And it was also kind of good to hear because that timber is agonizing to fish. Like, I mean, when you've got this standing timber in 20 feet of water, there's no way to effectively fish all of it. And, uh, and you don't want it. You want to be able to look past it and fish the structure that's on the bottom. And um, that was that was at least kind of a nice representation of, of how the fish will prefer other stuff. A lot of times, not that, not that they don't get on the timber, half the fish were still in it, but um, you don't and have you, to fish it. And then those fish that were in it, there was probably another specific reason why, right? Exactly. Not just randomness yeah. of timber, but there was probably a couple of other things that made that the right timber versus the 99% of just white noise timber. Good point, dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was something on the bottom that made them sit there or who knows what. So, uh, there, there, I'm sure there was, they weren't just there for the timber Yeah, for sure. Um, and then we talked about how there's not a ton of grass anymore in that lake. Like at, at least right now, the whole lake used to be just beautiful hydrilla. And then they had uh, a couple hurricanes. The water level got super high and killed a lot of the grass five years ago, four years uh-huh. ago, and it's slowly coming back. But in Todd's estimation, there was only 20% of Housing Creek, which where a lot of these fish were at, this massive creek in Toledo Bend, 20% of the creek had grass, but 33% of the bass that they had marked were relating to grass day in and day out. Okay. So again, that means they much preferred it by the numbers over other stuff, which is, I mean, that's that holds true anywhere, dude. I mean, grass is just a magnet to bass. They just love to live in it no matter the type of grass and no matter where you're at. I mean, you just, you can't beat grass, especially certain types. I mean, hydrilla, milfoil, there will be fish in that all year long. And that probably speaks to the fact that it creates its own micro ecosystem, right? So probably from the bottom of the food chain up, you have whatever plankton or whatever the bluegill and the bait fish want to eat all the way, you know, up the line from that versus dead timber probably doesn't have that same ecosystem growing off of it. Just a random thought, but that you know, to your point, grass is the the bomb. If you can get around that more than anything else, they've got everything in that grass. They've got their sh- their shelter. They've got a place to ambush, but they've also got all the food and stuff that relates that 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 lives in that grass. So you're totally right, man. It is its own ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I mean that's so that's basically all what I had gotten through the first half of the episodes. And, and one cool thing is they did uh, mention that they were going, they have three more episodes that are posted. I just didn't get time to watch them. And they, they say they get better every, with every episode as far as interesting info. So I'll yeah. watch the rest. Uh, I encourage you to, and all the listeners also, and then we'll talk about it next time as well. Uh, Cause I'm sure Rob will dig it too, but yeah. um, it's a cool study, dude. It's interesting. And, and again, you know, if you're, if your lake is like Toledo Bend, you can take a lot of this to heart if you're if you're a northern smallmouth fisherman or whatever uh the fish are going to act differently but uh, more entertainment than anything but i think anyone can appreciate that dude for the love of little small and brown fish right brown and green fish it's it's just cool to think that like um there's just so much diversity across you know where whether they live in a vast crappy universe like lake mead and they have to swim hundreds of miles they still get it done and survive or if they live in like the greatest structure and forage environment of all time. And they only move 120 feet a day. Like they're still, they're cool, man. Bass are a special fish for sure. 
Yeah, hundred percent. It is cool, and that's uh, it speaks to the challenge of our sport, man. And and that's yeah. what makes it. So, I mean, they're all bass, right? But everywhere you go, they they act and behave so differently. But uh, it's cool to get just to get a look under underwater and, and just to, um, yeah, it's like uh, it's just a perspective you you never see or hear. But um, dude, I'll tell you what, man. I don't know what's going on with this Wi-Fi in this uh, hotel, but it's doing the classic um, progressive downslope of. Uh, <laughs> quality here with what i can hear from you so i think uh we're gonna have to call this one uh pretty quickly but uh anything else uh, that you've got before we roll man yeah man i uh i don't know i i've been on a couple episodes since i maybe we've taken a moment to really express gratitude to all the people that are listening to us and interacting with us uh we appreciate it man having the comments and the uh, feedback is super gratifying we appreciate it a ton and it just helps us you know foster better conversations too so thank you for that and uh keep please keep communicating with us man we'll we will respond and interact all i know is your lips stop moving and uh dude i appreciate whatever you said hopefully it was something, uh, <laughs> something it wasn't good. It was terrible it's all hey, about you to echo nick's words whatever they were thanks to all the listeners uh, <laughs> look forward to uh another episode next week we'll talk about this more we'll get a guest and um yeah, hope you all have a uh, hope you all have a great week. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to the show, guys. To echo Nick's words, we really appreciate you all tuning in every week to listen to us. I uh, hope you all have a great week and we will chat with you next Monday.